I've been thinking a lot this week about what's called a watershed. So if you don't know what a watershed is, um, it really simply, it, it's a ridge of land that separates waters that flow to different areas. So on, a, on the smallest level, if you think about a tent, if you ever go camping uh, and it's raining, the tip of the tent is uh, the watershed. So on one side it goes, the water falls on one side, on the other side the water falls to the other side. On, on a bigger scale, this is the great continental divide of the US, so the, the Rocky Mountains. So if you take a road trip uh, towards LA um, and you just kinda, you're trucking it, the 50 hour drive, and, and you uh, approach the Rockies, everything to that point, water is flowing like towards the Mississippi River. It's flowing east, that's kinda what happens. All the rivers, all the tributaries, all that. And the minute you cross the Rockies, everything switches. Uh, so it's the watershed moment where water sheds in a different way. Uh, these moments are not just found in geography, they're also found in history. Uh, if you think about the printing press, uh, this is a watershed moment for humanity. It's like approaching the printing press, everything kind of operated in an agricultural mindset. It was very um, just different. And then you get the printing press and the spread of knowledge begins to happen. Learning for the masses begins to take place. And then we kind of move into a knowledge-based society. It's a watershed moment for humanity. Uh, if you like movies, anybody like movies? Raise of hands, who likes movies? Everybody likes movies, come on guys, everyone likes movies. Um, anyone seen Jurassic World yet? Okay, a few, amazing movie. Think back to the first one, Jurassic Park, the, the first, the second two were just terrible, just trash, but the first one is a watershed moment in film. And the reason is because the makers of that movie pushed the limits of CGI in ways they had never done it before. Like people did not understand uh, why these dinosaurs looked so real in 1993. And this was a moment, if you kind of look at the trajectory of movies up until that point, it was all kind of, people weren't really taking risks. You get to this moment and everything changes. All the movies afterwards are like, we gotta do bigger, we gotta do better. And now it's like Jurassic World. I think that's a real place. I, I saw the movie yesterday, not sure. Pretty sure if we go to Costa Rica, it's there. Cause it, I mean, it looks that real. So, I mean, that's what's happened. It's a watershed moment. Everything's different afterwards. We have these moments in our lives too, like in, in you and I's lives. So one for me is when I was 12 years old, I was living in Franklin, Tennessee, Cool Springs, it's where I grew up, and uh, my family moves to Decatur, Alabama, so huge upgrade, um, not really. Like, I love Decatur, like let me be real, I love Decatur, but Cool Springs, come on, it's awesome. Like everything is in Franklin, you know? But, so we moved to Decatur, Alabama, and uh, immediately I, I kind of have to develop this sense of independence and a sense to kind of keep busy with what I do because I'm not socializing quite as much. It's an easy way to say I didn't have friends. Uh, but I, I kind of developed this sense of keeping busy and working because I, I didn't really have a lot to do. And that's shaped who I am even today. It's a watershed moment for my life. Everything was different kind of after that moment. We all have these moments, right? So take a moment, just think, what's a watershed moment in my life where Kind of leading up to it, everything was one way, and then afterwards, everything was different. What is it for you? Like, think right now. Picture it in your head. So, so we all have these moments, right? Maybe it's a, um, a significant life event, or a move, or a school thing, or a job. We all have these moments. Today, we get to the watershed moment in the story of Jesus. 
And we get to the Watterson moment, the story that Mark is telling about Jesus, and uh, their moment is here. We've been in the book of Mark for like, what, eight, nine years now, if you've been with us? Like, so even before Ethos started, I think, we were like doing a Bible study in Mark. We just kept it going. Now, now we've been in Mark for, since like January, right? So we've been just trucking through, and we, we're finally to, to Mark 8, right? We're halfway through, and this is the watershed moment of the story. That's why I love going through books of the Bible like this. We get to really see uh, how it shapes up. And today we're looking at the watershed moment in the story. So ever since the disciples left their nets at the fishing uh, docks, they, they left their nets at the fishing boats, and ever since they left the tax booths, this question has been building up. Who is Jesus? What is the identity of Jesus? Every time he performed a miracle, every time he gave them insight into a teaching, every time he just spoke or did something with authority, it made this question more pressing. We get to chapter four, if you remember this. Uh, Jesus is on a boat, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and he's asleep in the middle of a storm. And the disciples wake him up, and they, they're like, hey Jesus, can you do something about the storm? And he's like, actually, yes, chill out. And the, and the storm like stills, like the storm listens to Jesus. And the disciples are quoted as saying, who is this that even the storm listens to him? Like, how would you like to have that power, right? You're having a dinner party and it's like 95 and 300% humidity and you're like, eh, not really what I was thinking. Let's go 75 and a cool breeze. Like that would be a sweet thing to be able to do, right? Like obviously Jesus is different than us because we can't do that. So people begin to notice Jesus is obviously different, but they're grasping at who he is. And we as the readers of Mark have gotten this special insight into who Jesus is because Mark is narrating it in a way that kind of lets us in on Jesus' identity, but the disciples don't have that insight yet. They're left to their own devices to discover, based on what they've seen and heard from Jesus, who Jesus is. The crowds that follow Jesus are even further removed, even further from grasping the true nature of who Jesus is. We get to verse 27, chapter 8, watershed moment of the story. The tension has built over and over in the story. The Pharisees try to expose Jesus. The disciples don't understand who he is. They keep getting closer to the Rockies, closer to the Rockies. And this is the moment where the identity of Jesus is explicitly affirmed for the disciples and for you and I. And the story sets off downhill from this point forward to the fulfillment of Jesus' mission on, on the cross. So here's where we're going uh, tonight, just kind of in the text. Uh, Jesus is gonna ask a couple of questions. And whenever Jesus asks questions, it's important to pay attention because he knows the answer, right? So Jesus knows the answer to these questions, so he's obviously not asking to get information. So when Jesus asks questions, it's usually to teach something. It's to make a point or for someone to have a revelation. So we wanna ask the question, what, what does Jesus uh, want the revelation to be for the disciples? And what does he want the revelation to be for us? He's gonna ask some questions to get us there. And the revelations are gonna be kind of in two different buckets. Uh, one, Jesus as a person, and one, Jesus' plan. So two buckets of revelation. Just trademark that phrase. That was great. Buckets of revelation, that's where we want. Person and plan of Jesus. So let's jump into the text and we'll, we'll get, get, to our, uh, get to our points. Here we go. Uh, verse 27 in chapter eight. I'm reading out of the ESV, so it might be a few different words if you're using one of our Bibles. It says, and Jesus went on, with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, 
you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would illuminate our minds to your word tonight. Uh, help us see what you have for this text. When we uh, come to your word with uh, humility, and ask, I just ask that you would um, help us see clearly into what it is you have for us. Uh, we, we trust your Holy Spirit. It's the only hope we have uh, to understand who, we are, who you are, God. We ask this for your beautiful name. Amen. So this is the moment. Uh, the watershed moment. We get to this town called Caesarea Philippi. And if you don't know anything about Caesarea Philippi, it's the northernmost point that Jesus goes on his entire ministry. So it, it's, he's just been all over the place uh, for the past eight chapters, right? Two years, they're just like sporadic, boom, across the Sea of Galilee, back across, back across. They're just like, they're going everywhere all over this area. It's been very random up to this point. And we get to this point in the story. And from this point on, Jesus is gonna make a beeline to Jerusalem. Like, no more detours, no more zigzags. It is one mission. And if you notice in verse 27, it says, on the way, he asked his disciples. And this phrase, on the way, is super important for where we're going in the weeks to come because this phrase, on the way, is gonna occur nine times in the next four chapters. So it's gonna be, on the way, Jesus taught them this. On the way, Jesus did this and said this. And so this phrase is very important, on the way. So it begs the question, like, on the way to what? Jesus has uh, finished kind of his sporadic ministry, so to speak. And from here on out, everything happens on the way to Jerusalem. So just imagine the scene. We, we don't often walk places anymore, right? We drive or we bike or we use our Segway to like get to the fridge. Like we, we don't want to walk anywhere, anywhere. Uh, no one has a Segway. Why did I say that? Like, um, but no one walks anywhere anymore, right? So uh, this is what's happening. The disciples, all 12 of them are walking with Jesus. Bartholomew's giving Thaddeus a piggyback ride maybe. He's tired. I'm just kind of trying to put us in the story. And uh, they, they get to maybe a pond and they take a break. They're skipping rocks, you know, doing whatever. And they're sitting around, and Jesus asks them a question. Um, who do people say that I am? Right? That's, that's the question. Who, who do they say that I am? The question is really intriguing to me. Because no one asks this question. Like, except Batman and, like, masked vigilantes. No one says, who do, who do people say that I am? It's like, Bruce Wayne, I don't know. Like, uh, most people say, what, what do people think about me? Or what do people say that I do? Or those are the things that we define ourselves by. Those are not identity questions. Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? I think the question assumes that people would have had to come up with an explanation for his difference. Because he was so different from people. They would have, must have had a pigeonhole to put him in. And the response reveals a wide gambit of titles. It's uh, John the Baptist, maybe, or Elijah, or another prophet. And these titles, there's some cool history as to why maybe they would have thought those things. But all it really shows us is that people are trying to delineate Jesus as different, but they don't quite grasp the full significance of who he is. They know he's different, but they, they didn't think uh, he could be the Messiah. 
Uh, Jews believed in this time that the Messiah or the Christ would be a king who would come and establish a kingdom on earth, like military reign. This was the prominent view of who the Messiah was in their time. So their view of the Messiah was so lofty, was so developed that they couldn't get to the point where they saw Jesus as that person. He didn't fit the bill. He wasn't a military leader. He didn't conquer armies. Uh, He didn't look like a king. He didn't act like a king. So obviously he's got to be Elijah or John the Baptist or some other prophet. And Jesus, knowing this, begins to press a little further. Uh, Have you ever had one of these moments when someone asks you a tough question uh, and then they begin to press further and you're like, whoa, wasn't ready for that. Like, so maybe somebody say, hey, Larkin, what do you think about, you know, the civil marriage union legislating it in the United States? And it's like, wow, I don't know. Or what do you think about this issue? And uh, the temptation for me is to kind of dodge it by citing multiple opinions. Have you ever done this before? So I'm like, well, this politician says this about this, and I think that's really valuable. But you know, on the other hand, there's this other guy who has this really valuable perspective, and I think that's really important to remember as well. And I totally dodged the question by citing multiple people. It's just cowardly on my part. Have you ever done this? And somebody might press me further and say, what do you think? It's like, wow, got to get off the fence and have some courage here to stand up maybe for, for what I believe. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's forcing them to separate themselves from the majority. He gets to the second question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a huge moment. We've been trucking towards the Rockies this whole time. It's a watershed moment. If you were with us last week, Jesus uh, is going to heal a blind man kind of progressively in kind of two phases. And this is what's been happening to the disciples spiritually. Jesus' progressive power has been illuminating their eyes to the spiritual reality of who Jesus is. And we get to the moment where the disciples must move their status from passive followers to active participants. That's the moment. They gotta move from passive followers to active participants. Participants, And all of us at some point have to make this decision. Will we just observe Jesus and follow Jesus passively or will we actively participate in him, uh, in his ministry? We all have to come face to face with the question, who do I say that Jesus is? What is his identity to me? Is he a good teacher? Is he a respectable historical fi- figure? Is he like the Easter Bunny, just kind of an irrelevant fairy tale? Like, um, like, who is Jesus to us? We all have to wrestle with that. We'll get to that a little bit more later. We get to verse 29, and Peter is going to act as a spokesperson for the whole group. So he's kind of speaking on behalf of all the disciples. And you could hear the nerves in his voice as he says this. He gets ready to speak. It's just unthinkable that this might be true. You are the Christ, like, you're the Messiah. This is the first time in the book of Mark someone calls Jesus the Christ who's not a demon or an evil spirit. This is a big moment. The Messiah, the anointed one, is here. And from here on out, everything is different. These guys have probably followed Jesus for a few years now. And they just hoped and hoped, I'm sure, that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, you can, like, Jesus goes off to pray. And they're like, what do you think? Is he? Is he? Maybe, you know, is he, the, is he the Messiah? I don't know. He doesn't look like a, a king, but man, he's, he's different. He's powerful. He has authority. This was the best news that any Jewish person could receive. Like the Messiah is here. Hundreds of years of anticipation for the Messiah. All these books in the Old Testament kind of foretelling the coming of a, of a Messiah. And they, they think, here it is. The Messiah reigning, all joy, all peace. Israel, the most powerful nation on earth. Blessing, prosperity. Here we go. It's, it's here. 
And Jesus says, but don't tell anybody. Be quiet. And I think that Jesus says this because Jesus knows that they do not yet fully understand what they have just said. Uh, They have the person right, but they do not yet understand his plan. Just confessing the person without understanding the plan um, is incomplete. Uh, So that's our first revelation. Jesus as a person. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. We all have to wrestle with that first question. But the, the kind of the second part of the revelation uh, is as Jesus' plan. It has to do with Jesus' plan. And um, here's the teaching moment I think that Jesus is going for. He, he kind of set this whole thing up to teach them about his, his plan. It says that he begins to speak plainly about the implications of being the Christ, of being the Messiah. He begins to speak plainly. And that word plainly in the original language carries a way bigger punch than it does in English. Uh, it really means boldly or with much clarity. Like Jesus is going at length to explain in a clear way what it means to be the Messiah. He says, I am going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by everyone. I will be killed. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. Like laying it out with clarity. And this is the opposite picture of what the disciples wanted. Like 100% opposite. It's a cosmic oxymoron to them. They just don't understand It bewilders the disciples, not because Jesus wasn't clear, but because they were not uh, able to accept this new reality yet. And I'm sure in this moment, they they were probably filled with disappointment and confusion. Like, Jesus, people have taught us for so many years, hundreds of years even, of tradition, that you would be different than what you're just saying. And Jesus' explicit mission is going to be in scandalous opposition to their desired Messiah, His life and mission is not going to be about prosperity or success. It's going to be about death and suffering and rejection. Like, how is this true? And this is the great paradox of the gospel. It's the way that God has chosen to reconcile his creation to himself. And Jesus is going into this willingly. Like, he's gladly participating in this mission. It's God's idea, and it's the way that God's chosen for people to be made right with him for Jesus to die, for Jesus uh, to take our sin as a ransom um, and to be raised. That's how it has to happen. And, and we're talking total rejection here. This is gonna be important in the next few weeks as we look at what's gonna transpire. If you look back in verse 31, it says three groups of people are gonna reject Jesus, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Uh, so these groups made up, was called, uh, made up what was called the Sanhedrin of their time. And really, that's a, a fancy word for the most influential and political religious authority uh, in their time in Israel. And the fact that they're listed together is really important because it makes it clear there's going to be comprehensive rejection of Jesus, like across the board. They often had feuds and disagreements and rivalries like our political parties do today. And their opposition to Jesus will be so great that it is sufficient to bring them together. If you think back to World War II, um, but leading up to our involvement in World War II as a country, uh, we were really divided. So it was like, man, Republicans, some of them were like, man, I don't know if we should do this. The Democrats were even, I mean, people on both sides trying to figure out, I don't know if we should get involved. We just got out of World War I, not super, not super into this. And then Pearl Harbor gets attacked, and it galvanizes our country. I mean, people are doing outrageous stuff to be able to support the movement. Both sides, both parties, one mission, we're going to get involved and end this thing. That's kind of what's happening here. Like across the board support, we got to reject Jesus and bring him down. So we see here that there begins to be this gap between the disciples' expectation of who Jesus 
uh, was supposed to be and their experience of the reality of Jesus. There's a gap between their expectation and their experience. This happens so often in our day, in our lives, where there are gaps between expectation and experience. That's where disappointment comes from. I think this is why there are so many failing marriages in our culture. People go into marriage expecting their spouse to fulfill all their desires, to satisfy me in all these ways, to to fulfill me in this way, to bring me joy, to to bring me happiness, to to fix these problems in me. And they they think it's gonna be the fix, like the fix it to to their problems and to their life. And they, they end up putting all of the weight on their spouse that only God can fulfill. And there's this huge gap between what they were expecting and what they actually experienced in marriage. And their spouse fails them and things begin to fall apart because their expectation was different than their experience. And their marriage begins to be unbearable and there's failure in marriage. I think that's part of the root of what's happened. We've placed the role of God on other people in our relationships. And likewise, Peter is gonna recoil at this revelation it's so natural what Peter does here. I like to vilify Peter and kind of make him the Bible bozo, uh, like the guy who always screws it up, you know, like always he's on and then he's off. You know, he's hot and he's cold, you know. Uh, it's like a Katy Perry song, Peter. It's like always he, he's going in and out and, and that's what we place on Peter. Um, but Peter is really speaking the common opinion of the disciples here. He's really speaking up. The disciples are kind of off to the side, maybe saying, hey, Peter, you should probably go talk to Jesus. He's being kind of irrational here. And they kind of push Peter you know, over to Jesus and Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. He says, hey, here's the thing, Jesus. I, I, I don't know if, and Jesus kind of cuts him off and he like stops and he turns towards all the disciples. And he comes down with a heavy reprimand on Peter. Uh, to Peter, Jesus' way is unthinkable, but to Jesus, it's inevitable. It has to happen this way. And I think what Jesus is showing us here that to think just in strictly human wisdom and ways uh, is not to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to be a disciple of the world or of the enemy or of Satan. And Jesus just turns the rebuke upside down on Peter. And he does this in the same way he does in the desert um, uh, couple years before when, uh, if you remember, there's a story in Matthew 4 where Jesus goes into the desert, he's praying, he's fasting, and Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Uh, Much like with similar things that that Peter is saying here, he's going to ask Jesus, hey, you can have all of the things that you're talking about, kingdom, you can reign, you can have power, um, but through a different way. He's going to say, if you just bow down to me, you can have all of that. And Jesus is going to respond to Satan the same way in that chapter as he does to Peter away with you, get behind me. And Peter does not realize what he has opposed here. Um, and, and I think the, the sharpness of Jesus' reprimand, uh, at least to me, suggests that a, a near truth is often more dangerous than an obvious error. A near truth is more dangerous than an obvious error. Um, in 1998, the Mars orbiter uh, was launched by NASA uh, to go orbit Mars, check the weather pattern so that when we blow it with our planet in 20 years, we can kind of move there. You know, that, that was kind of the plan maybe. And um, so we subcontract, NASA subcontracts a company, an engineering company in Maryland to help build part of this rocket. And uh, like many of us would do, they assume, like any good American, that we're going to use American units because uh, we're smarter than everyone and we don't use the metric system. We don't like to count by 10, even though it's way easier. And so we use the American units and they build into the final thrusting sequence uh, American units. 
problem with that is that NASA operates on the metric system. So we launched this, this piece of metal uh, with a computer on it, slingshot it around the Earth's gravity, used the moon's gravity to, to send it 150 million miles to Mars. Like, nail it, just like everybody's feeling good. They're like, we just killed that, crushed it. And you know, there's like an intern that's like looking at the paper and he's like, oh no, this is not good. He's like, ah, I think something's wrong here. And, and a small error brings this thrusting sequence in a couple miles too low to the Mars orbit, and it burns up in a flash. Done. Gone. Like $400 million. Gone. In a moment. Or aliens may have shot it down. We're not really sure, but um, that's what happened. A small error. The numbers were right. A small error caused complete disaster with this mission. And I think this is true so often. Small errors are so much more dangerous than obvious, or yes, near truths or small errors are way more dangerous than, than obvious ones. Being lukewarm or, or having the title for Jesus correct without the understanding, a near truth is gonna be so, so dangerous for Jesus. Even for us that are following Jesus in the room, this is a, this is a hard word from Jesus, but uh, Jesus is gonna have harsh words for those that claim Jesus as Lord, but don't live according to what he says, that live in opposition to his words. And he says to Peter, you are living from a human perspective. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. And I want you to see God's love in Jesus' response to Peter. This is not a blind scorning, like off the cuff, like, Get behind me, Satan, Peter. Like, this is not what Jesus is doing. Uh, Peter has un- like, unknowingly resisted the plan of God to free his soul. And Jesus is going to stand with resilience to God's plan for his freedom and for his everlasting life. Like, see the love of Jesus to stand firm for Peter. This is not a blind scorning. It must happen, the way, happen this way. Satan wants me to listen to you. He wants me uh, to, to do this a different route, but my death will be your eternal forgiveness and freedom. The love of God is strong uh, in Jesus' response to Peter. And as the week went on this week, uh, I began to just kind of see how often I do this. I like to look at Peter and, again, make him the guy that I always, uh, he's a scapegoat. And, and I kind of chuckle at his attempt to take the God of the universe off to the side and, and correct him. It's like me going to... Uh, the head chef at a nice steak restaurant, me not knowing much about how to cook and saying, hey, can you bring the chef out? I'd like to give him a few pointers on how to do this medium rare thing. Um, like just unthinkable. The God of the universe is standing here. Peter's gonna kind of try and correct his ways. Tell him that there's a better way. And it's like halfway through the week, kind of the pages became a mirror to me. And I was like, oh shoot. Like I do this so often with Jesus. I hear his words, I read his words in a setting like this or in my quiet time in the morning and I subtly rebuke the ways in the will of Jesus. I'll hear Jesus uh, speak into how I deal with my life goals or uh, my marriage or my finances or um, what I do with my money or my lifestyle and I can kind of proverbially take him off to the side and say, Jesus, I, I know you said following you means this, but I think there's a better way for my life in, in our time today. I think your, your ways are kind of outdated. I think I wanna do whatever with, I want with my money and build up my comfort and my security and I think I'll do it that way. I know, I know you said it means loving my enemies and serving the poor and sacrificing the good of my own life or the, the good of others, but I think I'm just gonna ignore that. 
Even in the text that we're gonna study next week, Jesus is gonna go even deeper. He's gonna say, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But, but if you pick up your cross and follow me and lose your life, you'll save it. This is what Jesus says is, is the plan. And you know, we, we never do this uh, on purpose or like explicitly say this in our minds, but um, again, I've sat in settings like this and just chosen to kind of passively set my mind on something else. Like, oh, I'm not gonna think about that. Like, I'm just gonna put my mind somewhere else. I'm gonna escape the conviction moment and, and think about something else. And idly, I rebuke Jesus and his word and his ways. Um, I'm convinced, uh, and this is a scary thing, like, I think Jesus might have said this to me at certain points in my life. Like, Larkin, you're, you're not uh, thinking from my perspective. You're not thinking from a God uh, perspective. You're thinking from human ways. Um, it's, you're living about you, your will and your ways. And this is, this is a hard word that I felt like God has said to me this week. And I was just praying this week. It's like, I do not want to get up here and say this to you guys without having first submitted my life to this. And it's been tough. Like, this is a, it's gonna be a long journey as I try and figure out how do, I, how do I let who Jesus is match up with how I actually live. Um, so as we close, I want us to find ourselves in the story. I want us to kind of put ourselves in the moment and, and hear Jesus' questions to us uh, and see how we can uh, maybe learn what God has for us. So I wanna invite you to write down two questions as we close. We're gonna use these in communion time. We're gonna use these throughout the week as we uh, kind of pray and think about um, where God is leading us. First question, who do I say that Jesus is? The reality is Jesus uh, can't really be just a good moral teacher. Um, he hasn't really left that option open to us in a way. Like he's either crazy uh, because normal people don't claim to be God. Like if I get up here and claim to be God, you'd be like, you're crazy. Like he's either crazy uh, he's a liar because good teachers don't lie, uh, or he was who he said he was. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. I think those are kind of the three options that are left open to us. But on a deeper level, um, the first answer that, that even me as a, as a follower of Jesus likes to say is not always the one that's most accurate. I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord for me. Like, obviously I believe he's true. I believe he is my savior. And okay, cool. Next question, Larkin. And, and I want to press this in here, like really take inventory of your heart. Um, really think about, okay, who do I say that Jesus is? And really think about that. Um, and Jesus is going to show us we can't really be in the middle here. Uh, being in the middle is, is kind of a wash. He's either an irrelevant fairy tale or he is the true God in the flesh, our Savior. And it's not enough to sit on the fence. The disciples walked with Jesus for a long time before they began to understand this. And so I want you to know, if, if you're just kind of searching and asking questions, if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, this is the safest place for you to follow and, and to learn and to ask questions and to, and to journey with us. That's why we say that every week. No matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here to search and to learn. Um, and at the same time, I want you to hear this with all the love I have, like sitting on the fence is not enough for you to be right with God. And at some point, you, you gotta decide. Uh, you, you gotta say, okay, w w who do I say that Jesus is? Uh, you, you can't just quote other people. I read this book, I think this is good about Jesus. Uh, at some point, we have to decide who is Jesus. Uh, maybe today can be a watershed moment for you 
where you kind of look at your life all the way up. And today might be the day where you say, I, I'm going to decidedly say that I believe Jesus is the son of God who died for my sins. Like today could be a watershed moment in your life. Everything different uh, from here on out. Uh, I hope that it is. I desperately hope uh, that you can find the grace of God tonight. Second question for us tonight. First question was, who do I say that Jesus is? Second question is, how big is the gap between the person and the plan in my life? Between the person and the plan in my life. How big is the gap between the person and the plan in my life? In other words, where does your life accurately reflect who you claim Jesus to be? Where is there room to grow? Both sides. Where, where does your life really reflect uh, the, the way you claim and confess Jesus to be in your life? And, and where is there room to grow? And it, it'll be all over the place for each of us individually in here. There are places where I, I feel like I'm really trying to submit my life to Jesus. And there are places where there's a huge gap between my confession of Jesus and my following of Jesus. Um, there are some of us in here, some of you guys in here, that are just killing it. Like, you are, you say, like, God, you, you have the authority in my life. Jesus, I believe you are the Lord, and you're just giving it your all to, to really make sure there's no gap there. Uh, that's why we have people in our church who sacrifice vacation time to go serve the poor in our city. Uh, there's people who have sold all their belongings. They're moving to Seattle a couple weeks ago to, to plant a church in Seattle. Um, that's why so many of the people in our church sacrifice their afternoons and their nights and uh, their weekends to partner with families in the city and underprivileged communities. There's so many of us that, that are really doing a great job in partnering with God and his plan. And I want you to think about that. Like, really spend a moment. Just Don't just jump to the areas we can grow. Like, praise God for the areas that he has grown in your heart. Like, where are you seeing growth where are you seeing the gap become smaller and more narrow? Where you're like, God, thank you. Like, you've really done a work in this area of my life. Praise God for those things and thank him because the Holy Spirit is the only reason that that has happened. That's the first part of it. And the second part, where's there room to grow? So this is, this is not a condemning part. This is a moment where there will be some conviction, but I really don't want us to let it slide over to condemnation. I want you to see the love of God drawing you into more life here. Like God is out for your joy and he wants you to be uh, as close to him as possible. And that's where joy and fullness of life is found. So where are there areas that we can kind of narrow the gap? Maybe it's with your finances or your relationships or how you deal with your sexuality or um, just there, there's a ton of different areas in our lives where we might think, okay, my way is better. I think uh, I'm, I'm going to listen to you, Jesus, but I'm not going to follow you and uh, I really want us to kind of take inventory here and say, okay, God, where is the gap? Um, where, where can the gap be shortened or, or narrowed a little bit? Uh, really, let's have the courage. Like, God is out for your joy. Uh, let's have the courage to ask this question. As like, I'm trying to do this. Let's, let's all do this. Where can we do this? Where is an area that I, Larkin, am claiming the person of Jesus, but not submitting to the plan of Jesus? Will we have the courage to follow Jesus' ways. I, I think if we do, uh, there'll be a lot of watershed moments over and over again where uh, we will choose to do that, ask a hard question, listen to God, and our week will be different because of that moment or our day will be different from that moment on. Our month, our year even, could be different because we have chosen to continually have the courage to ask these questions and to kind of look at our own hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit.
Let's pray.